people sort of ask sometimes, what's you know, what's the secret to success or whatever? I don't think there's any secrets, but working hard's a pretty good place to start. Well, I spend a lot of time talking about happiness, but I spend just almost as much time talking about some of the myths and misconceptions because there are many of them. <laughs> um, so some of the more common ones are that we should or that we can be happy all the time. We can't, and we shouldn't even try to be. So travel, for example, is a great way of spending money to enjoy experiences that will provide long-term you know, positive memories. So optimists don't deny the reality of negative life events. That's a really, really important point. It's not about being unrealistically or what some people now call toxic positivity. Hey, my dear listeners, welcome back to the next episode of Inspire Someone Today. I'm very happy today to have an internationally renowned leader in the field of positive psychology. He's a much sought after speaker, facilitator, consultant, coach, writer, podcaster, and it, the list goes on. He's also the chief happiness officer at the Happiness Institute. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tim Sharp on this episode of Inspire Someone Today. Tim, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to chat. Yep. So you are renowned as Dr. Happy and I'm sure it just didn't happen just like that. So how did Tim Sharp translate to Dr. Happy? How did this whole uh, journey unfold, Tim? Yeah, it's a, it's a long answer, actually. I'll try to keep it brief. But uh, basically, in short, my background was in clinical psychology uh, or clinical and academic psychology. So I started out as a therapist and researcher and lecturer here in Sydney, Australia. And had a very, um, well, I think successful and satisfying career as a clinical academic. Um, so I really enjoyed that, was doing very well initially, um, in a large teaching hospital here in Sydney. So, which was attached to a university. And then I went out into private practice. Um, and that's when I started doing a bit more corporate work and organizational wellbeing and, and that sort of work. And it was around that time when I was starting to sort of establish myself a bit more in that area. That the very early stages of positive psychology started to just started to grow, and at that stage again, it was very very early. But what that meant for me is that I made a bit of a shift or a big shift, I suppose, from talking, working, and talking mostly about stress, depression, anxiety, and started focusing a bit more on happiness and thriving and flourishing. Uh, well, at the time I was doing that, I was doing quite a lot of work with a with a colleague, with a friend and a colleague, and we used to work together, collaborate on quite a few um, organizational programs. It was actually his idea. He jokingly called me Dr. Happy uh, one day or he signed off an email saying, see you, Dr. Happy, because I started talking a lot more about happiness. And I must admit, I didn't really think much of it at the time. It was a bit of a joke and it was really just between the two of us. And I also thought, well, I didn't really think anyone would take me seriously if I called myself that. But as we talked more about it, as we, when I talked more about it with, with this colleague, I realized that it was kind of a catchy name and that it was attention grabbing. And I suppose then I, I started to think about using it consciously and more actively to get people's attention, I suppose. And then it, it, it grew from there. It indeed has caught people's attention. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you didn't plan this out the way it has kind of transformed today. But how was it for Tim growing up? What was that you're looking forward to? And uh, is this what you wanted to eventually do? Uh, well, yes and no. <laughs> In the early days, I had no idea, really. I suppose like a lot of young, um, certainly when I was a young kid, well, I had all sorts of dreams about things that lots of particularly young boys want to do. I wanted to play cricket for Australia, but I was never going to be good enough to do that. <laughs> I wanted, you know, I love sports. So I would have loved to have been a professional athlete, but I was never good enough to do that. 
and then I had a few other things. I think at one point I, I sort of dabbled with the idea of being a journalist uh, or writer. That was something I kind of, but then I, I fell into psychology because I, again, I had this vague, I was, well, I was very interested in sport and I had this vague idea of sports psychology. And that was when I finished school. That was the, the only thing that really interested me. I really wasn't interested in law or medicine or business or engineer or, you know, there weren't really many other things that interested me, but I had this vague idea about sports psychology. But at that time, there weren't really any sports psychology courses uh, here in Sydney, Australia. It wasn't really a a thing. Um, So I fell into psychology almost accidentally because it was the closest thing to what I thought I might want to do. But even then, I didn't really know what a psychologist did. I'd never seen a psychologist at that stage in my life. And and it was was more through process of elimination. There's nothing else I want to do. This might be interesting. But it took me a few years to really discover that it was something I wanted to do. And then I fell into clinical psychology almost by accident again. Again, I hadn't really thought about it. Well, I was doing quite well in my undergraduate degree and one of my lecturers recommended that I consider postgraduate studies in clinical psychology, which I did, and I loved it. And so that led to that sort of first stage, my very satisfying career as a clinical academic. And then, and then, as I mentioned a bit earlier, I made the shift into positive psychology. So, you know, it certainly wasn't a grand plan, not when I was a teenager or even a young adult. And I suppose it, it really started to take shape a bit, probably in my, well, maybe mid to late twenties, I suppose it started to become a bit more, a bit clear that this is something I love to do, something that I think I could be good at doing. Um, and yeah, and then it grew from there. Great. So from that clarity of thought, what you wanted to do during your mid-20s to where you are today, are there any specific incidents, specific things that has happened uh, that has shaped for you to be the person that you are? Uh, well, professionally, yeah. I mean, I think, um, well, I think I'd always learned, I've been brought up to work hard, I suppose. Um, and, you know, I think people sort of ask sometimes, what's, you know, what's the secret to success or whatever? I don't think there's any secrets, but working hard's a pretty good place to start. And what I also learned is it's easier to work hard at something you love and enjoy. Um, so I suppose I, I was lucky in some ways to have parents who encouraged me to do something I wanted to do. You know, they never wanted to force me or, or my, you know, I have a brother and sister and they never told us, you know, this is what you should do or that you should try to make money or you should do this or that. They really encourage us to find something that we, you know, were passionate about. And again, although it took me a few years, I realized I was passionate about helping people, about psychology. And when you're passionate about something, again, it's not hard to work hard. You know, I really enjoyed, I did, you know, I did three degrees and I, I worked full time while I was doing my PhD and that was a lot of work, but I loved it. I thoroughly loved it. Um, so I suppose that's one thing that definitely shaped me is to, if you pursue what you love, you'll probably be good at it and it won't be hard to work hard. The other thing that really made a big difference was finding mentors. Along the way, I had several fantastic, significant, you know, substantially influential mentors. Uh, so when I finished my master's degree and my first employer who went on to become my PhD supervisor and my employer, again, was the most significant person in my professional life. And I was, I consider myself incredibly lucky to have had someone just, well, firstly, a really good man, a really good human being, but also a very good psychologist. So I learned a lot from him as a professional and as a person, because I was, I suppose I was becoming a man at that time. Uh, he was, you know, just that much older that I could learn from him again as a psychologist, as a person, as a leader. And also I was learning management and leadership skills as well at the time. And then following that, found a few other different mentors at different stages of my career. And I think, you know, I think that's something that's really important. I, I really encourage people when I speak to younger people now or people starting out, I really encourage them to find other people who are more established or who are successful in whatever way 
and learn from them. <laughs> you know, I think that's something that a lot more people could benefit from. It's a great call out, uh, team. I think for all successful career professionals, the single most question that get asked is what's the secret for success? And for somebody like you, who is Dr. Happy, I'll ask you this question. What is the secret of happiness? <laughs> well, <laughs> Uh, my first response is probably the secret is that there's no secret. Um, and I say that half jokingly, but I also say it very seriously because I do think, um, you know, one of the biggest problems is people are often looking for this magical, you know, the silver bullet, the holy grail, and, and there really isn't one. So although I was half joking, I'm also pretty serious. There's no secret. There's no magic answer. And, and even if there was, I suppose, even if there was some secret for me, it will probably be a different secret for you. And because you're a different person and, you know, we're all different. So our, what will contribute to our happiness will vary from person to person. That being said, there are, you know, some general principles that will be beneficial to all of us. Um, and so I suppose if there's a secret or if there's a, uh, something that will work, it's, it's working towards finding the right combination or the right recipe for you. And I, and I use that metaphor a bit about a, a recipe, say, because it's a bit like, you know, it's about, it's a bit like cooking or eating. Your favorite food may well be different to my favorite food. Um, that doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but you know, we, some of us like more salt. Some of us like more sweet. Some might like more chili or, you know, some can, you know, hotter uh, flavors, whatever. Um, you need to find your recipe, your combination that will work for you. Um, and I guess once you've found that, the next secret, I suppose, is working at that day after day. You know, we've got to continually work at it. It's not something you can just find and then forget about. Um, so the other metaphor I sometimes use is to compare it to our physical health. You know, you can't just go to the gym once, do a couple of exercises and expect to be fit and strong for the rest of your life. You know, you've got to go to the gym every day or, you know, three or four times a week, work out week after week, month after month. You've got to keep doing that and keep adjusting and keep modifying. Well, it's the same for our psychological strength um you know we've got to find out the right exercises uh, and do them on a regular basis um uh and then and then adjust as we change and as the world around us changes that's an interesting uh, take on that i think uh, happiness is a recipe each one of us need to define what that recipe is and how does that taste while we talk about happiness i think one element that we don't necessarily talk about is the myths around happiness is happiness means Absence of disappointment, or is it beyond that? What What are the myths around happiness? Yeah, look, that's a really good question. And, and this, I actually spent a lot of my time, well, I spent a lot of time talking about happiness, but I spent just almost as much time talking about some of the myths and misconceptions because there are many of them. <laughs> so some of the more common ones are that we should or that we can be happy all the time. We can't. And we shouldn't even try to be. So even though I do talk a lot about happiness, I also talk a lot about unhappiness because that's a normal part of life. You know, it's perfectly normal and appropriate to experience anxiety, uh, stress, sadness, grief, uh, even anger, frustration. Now, these are normal human emotions. And what we know from the research is that if you try to deny them or if you try to push them away, they'll actually just push back even harder. So acceptance of unhappiness is actually an important part of happiness, which sort of, uh, you know, a lot of people haven't really thought about it like that, but it really is important to accept, acknowledge, um, to be realistic. Uh, and the, the reality is there will be distress in life. There'll be disruptions. There'll be failures. There'll be, you know, these things happen. So learning how to cope with them and manage them is an important part of enjoying happiness. So, so we can't be happy all the time. You know, no one can. It's, that's 
totally unrealistic goal. Um, and even if we could, we wouldn't necessarily want to be because, again, those other emotions are actually important. We can learn from them. You know, we can learn from grief. We can learn from failure. You know, some of the most important lessons in life come from when things go wrong. So that doesn't mean it's, that doesn't mean it's enjoyable at the time. It can actually be painful at the time. No one likes to fail. It is, you know, by definition, it's upsetting. But if we can think about it the right way and interpret it the right way and then, as I said, learn and grow from it, that can lead to a longer-lasting form of happiness. Um, one of the other big myths about happiness is that it's just about feeling good. It's not. Well, it, well, it partly is. Um, so in positive psychology, there's, well, there's many definitions of happiness, but the two sort of simple definitions are one, one form of happiness is feeling good. It's a form of positive emotion. Now, that's great. You know, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing. Joy and fun are, are good things. But what positive psychology is really about is a more enduring, deeper form of living a really good life, which we sometimes talk about as thriving and flourishing. And that does involve positive emotion, but it also involves a lot more. It involves living a life of meaning and purpose. Now, anyone that's pursued a long-term meaningful goal knows that it won't all be fun. You know, and there'll be difficult times. There'll be hard work. So it's not always fun and laughing and play. Um, sometimes we've got to work bloody hard. Sometimes there'll be sweat and tears. And But that's part of living a meaningful life if we're pursuing something meaningful and purposeful. Um, it's also, you know, it's also not just about me, me, me. So this is one of the other myths that happiness is just about selfishness or taking care of myself. Well, no, that's not true at all. It's well, it's partly, you know, I do need to take care of myself, um, but it's also very much about relationships. So happiness is very much about our loved ones, our family, our friends, our colleagues, even. Uh, in fact, arguably, that's the most important thing. You know, many researchers would suggest that the most significant contributor to happiness, health, well-being, longevity is the quality of our relationships, uh, connectedness. So, again, that goes against one of the myths that it's just about me, that it's just a solo endeavour. No, it's not at all. It's very much about us, I suppose. Um, so there's some of the bigger myths. I mean, there are other ones like, you know, that, that money will bring more happiness. That's actually a complex question. Uh, the answer is yes and no. Uh, money can bring more happiness, but only if you spend it or use it in the right way. You know, so the wrong way, so to speak, is just buying more and more stuff. We know that more and more stuff doesn't necessarily lead to more and more happiness because you just get used to it. It's just, you know, the, and you get used to higher and higher levels of better and better quality stuff. So, you know, maybe, you you know, when you were younger, you were happy with a, you know, let's just say a shirt that cost $20. And then as you earn a bit more money, you start buying shirts that cost $50 and then maybe $100. And then, you know, and then you buy more and more expensive cars and bigger and bigger houses. And so we don't get happier and happier. We just want more and more. However, if you spend your money in other ways, you can actually get more happiness from it. Like what? The, if you spend it on other people or if you spend it on experiences. So, for example, uh, as you know, I recently went on a holiday. So travel, for example, is a great way of spending money to enjoy experiences that will provide long-term, you know, positive memories. Um, and that's, uh, you know, in, in, in a sense, spending on experiences, not, not just travel, but other things that you might enjoy, so hobbies or pastimes or activities, that's actually far more beneficial. And I did read somewhere which basically said, happiness is just not about feeling good, but also about doing good. So what is the impact of that? 
Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite sayings. Actually, I say that all the time. And so what that means again, it's it's about you know, it's not just about me. It's about the people around me. So doing good. Um, well, that, so there's several layers to that. So in my life, I've got my wife and children. Uh, that's the the closest, um, you know, most intimate uh, circle, I suppose. But then there's my broader family, um, you know, siblings and one parent who's still alive and in-laws. And then there's nephews and cousins and, and then there's friends and then there's associates and acquaintances and then there's colleagues. Uh, now all of them are important at different levels. You know, my wife and kids are probably the most important, most intimate in some ways, but those other relationships are still important as well. And what we know, the more I do good for them, the more I feel good in return. Uh, I suppose that, you know, the other saying is in giving we receive. Um, there's lots of research on the benefits of altruism, uh, volunteering. You know, we know that people that volunteer, for example, which is a form of doing good, tend to have, you know, high levels of life satisfaction. So, yeah, that's, I definitely endorse that, that happiness is not just feeling good, it's also doing good. But they're mutually beneficial because when we do good, we feel good. And when we feel good, we're more likely to do good. So they work hand in hand. So for all the listeners out here, what are some of the practices that they can adapt to elevate happiness? Some easy ones that people can do. Yeah. Um, so much of my work for almost 20 years now, it was about 20 years ago, I developed a philosophy, I suppose, of, of happiness, which was drawn from all the research into positive psychology and related fields. And in, in summary, that was about happiness is something you choose. And when I say choose, I mean that in two ways. One by choosing, I mean, it's about, I suppose it's about taking responsibility and prioritizing happiness. You know, there are a lot of people who say they want to be happier, but when you look at their day-to-day lives, they're really not prioritizing it. They're prioritizing other things. And so if you prioritize other things, they will take, determine your focus and, and your actions, etc. So, So the first part of happiness is something you choose is choosing a life where you really want to value happiness, taking responsibility that this is something I'm going to seek. I'm not going to just wait for someone else to give it to me. But CHOOSE is also an acronym that stands for six key strategies, um, again, based on the positive psychology research, which if you like, I'll, I'll quickly run through them now. So CHOOSE obviously uh, starts with C, and C starts uh, C stands for, uh, well, it stands for clarity. And, and what I mean by that is clarity of values, clarity of priorities. I already touched on the idea that, you know, if we want more happiness, we need to prioritize it. But if we want a better life, a good life, we also need to, uh, lead a life that's guided by values. And um, this is a really, really important part of positive psychology. Um, and if you don't even know what those values are, you can't be guided by them. So the first thing, you know, we need to be clear about what's, what's really important to me. Now, again, there's no right or wrong answers and, your answers may well be different to mine, and that's okay. We're different people with different lives, etc. But each and every one of us, if we really want to live a good and meaningful life, we need to be clear. This is the C in clarity, clear of what's really important to me. You know, is it about generosity, kindness, compassion, or is it about competition? And you know, there's different ways we can live our lives. Some ways are more likely to lead to more happiness and thriving and flourishing and health and well-being. Other ways, maybe less so. So. So that's the first thing I really encourage people to do is to sit back and ask, you know, what's really important to you? Is it, you know, is it empathy and tolerance or is it something else? Is it love and kindness or is it something else? And then once we're really clear on that, they should guide pretty much every decision we make every single day. And that makes living a good life that much easier. Without that clarity, 
it's very hard. It's it's like you know, it's like trying to hit a target that you can't even see. Uh, so that's the C in, in it's about clarity of values, priorities, etc. The H, so the H in two stands for healthy living. Now, too often people talk about psychological health and physical health as separate things, but they're they're really not separate. Intimately and integrally interlinked um so we know that our psychological well-being can affect our physical health and well-being and vice versa so if we want to enjoy more happiness we need to look after our physical health and well-being and that's just you know simple obvious but often neglected things like exercise um uh in you know, exercise is not just good for our muscles and our cardiovascular health. It's good for our mental health. It's good for our psychological well-being. Exercise is a stress buster and, a, and an antidepressant. Um, it calms us down. So irregular exercise in some way or other, and there are lots of different ways to exercise. Again, we're all different. Some people go to the gym and lift weights. Some people run on the road. Some people ride bikes or swim or whatever it might be. There's no right or wrong, but what we do need to do, what most of us could do better, is just move our bodies more. We need to move our bodies more, keep active, get away from the screen sometime because, again, there's no doubt that exercise and activity are good for our happiness and well-being. But it's also about healthy living. It's also about diet. Um, you know, what we eat is important, not just gut and our weight, but you know, for our brain. What, what, what we feed our guts, that actually affects our brain health as well, which affects our mental health. Um, and then there's things like sleep. Sleep is super, super important. You know, it's really hard to be happy if you're tired all the time. People, and, and we do know that a lot of people are tired all the time. A lot of people just don't get enough sleep. So their brains don't work as well. They don't function as well. They're not as productive. They're not as efficient. It affects their memory and attention and decision making. So as well as exercise and diet, good sleep is vitally important for healthy living and happy living. So that's the C in the H, clarity, healthy living. The first O stands for optimism. And I use that in a sort of broad sense here. So optimism has a particular meaning within psychology. But I, what I mean here is really just it's about attitude. It's about mindset. It's about focusing more on what's going well. It's about hope and gratitude and, you know, what's going well, what's going, what's good in life rather than just getting bogged down in what's wrong in life. And, and it's very easy to get bogged down in problems. If you watch the news, for example, all it ever tells you is what's going wrong. You know, if you turn on social media, it's easy to think what you're missing out on. So that's, you know, that's, we need to be aware of that and mindful of that. But we can also retrain our brains or focus our brains on the good things, on the good people, on what successes there are and what wins we're having. And we know that people that do that, people who focus more, have a more optimistic and more mindset, people who are more grateful and appreciative of life tend to be happier. It's that simple. They're healthier and happier and uh, more successful pretty much in every endeavor. Now, some people find that really easy. Um, and so for some listeners, maybe this is something that if that comes naturally to you, well, good luck to you. But for some of us, we've got to work at it. Um, but the good news is you can work at it. It's a skill you can learn, you can practice. And as I said earlier, you know, just like you can go to the gym and build up your muscles where you can do optimism exercises and build up your psychological muscles in a similar way. Um, so that's the first O. The second O is others. And as I hinted at earlier, you know, happiness is very much about the other people in our lives. And we know that the happiest people, the healthiest people prioritize relationships. They don't just say, you know, I love my wife or they don't just say, you know, I care for my kids. They spend time actively cultivating and fostering those relationships. Because again, these things, we need to work at these things day after day. If you, 
you know, I've been lucky enough to be married for almost 30 years now. Um, and it's something you've got to keep working at, you know, the, you know, we have ups and downs and there's challenges and, you know, especially with children and sicknesses and all sorts of things. And so you can't, it's not just something that happens. People with good quality relationships prioritize and make time to work on and to, to make those relationships good. And again, as I said earlier, it's not, it's not just your husband or wife or children or parents, uh, those ones are important, but it's also your colleagues in the workplace. I mean, most of us spend a lot of time at work, so we spend a lot of time with our colleagues. So those relationships are super, super important as well. So, And again, you know, we know that connection, belonging, uh, having a sense of community, all these different layers of good quality relationships are vitally, vitally important. Uh, which brings us to the S in choose, uh, which is about strengths. Now, one of the most significant changes that I noticed when I went from clinical psychology to positive psychology was that in my early clinical training, all of the focus was on weaknesses. It was basically all about where you were going wrong in life, what mistakes you were making, and how to try to fix it. Now, that's not entirely wrong because, you know, we all have faults and failings. None of us is perfect. We all make mistakes. And if we can fix those things, well, great. But just like we all have faults and failings, we also all have strengths and positive attributes. And it's just as if not more important to focus on them and to ask, how can I make the most of them? And this is a really, this is a core component of positive psychology. What's the best in you and how can you make the best of the best in you? Where do your strengths lie? Where, where are your psychological attributes? What's, what's so special about you and how can you use that as much as possible? This is what the happiest most successful people do. Uh, and this is what the best organizations do too in that context. They they allow people to bring their strengths to work, to be themselves at work, to thrive and flourish as individuals within a team organization. So, yeah, focusing on our strengths, focusing on what we're best at uh, is a really, really important part of, uh, of positive psychology and thriving and flourishing and happiness. And then the final letter, E, uh, is about enjoying the moment, about enjoying life, about having fun. You know, I think I certainly... I've made the mistake many times of taking myself and taking the world too seriously at times. Um, and the world is serious at times. I don't deny that. You know, there are lots of serious things happening and we all have, you know, we all have responsibilities in different ways. Um, so I'm not disputing that at all. But what's life without a bit of fun? What's life without some enjoyment and pleasure? And I think, again, too often, too many of us kind of forget that we think, you know, that's just something for kids to have. Well, no, us adults are allowed to have fun as well. The thing is, the more we enjoy life, the more we can do those serious things well. You know, that, that kind of energizes us and motivates us and inspires us to do the serious thing. So, you know, again, they, they work hand in hand. So, so that's a brief summary of Choose, which again covers the main constructs that positive psychology researchers has identified over the last couple of decades. That's a wonderful framework. I think if you were to choose happiness, choose Choose. And you did touch upon a couple of interesting pieces there if you were to kind of talk a little more about that, like optimism exercise as an example. What is it? How can one do optimism exercise? Well, I'll try to keep it simple um, because I'll try to give you a simple example. So one of the, in some of the very early research into optimism and pessimism, which is part of the flip side, broke down uh, optimism and pessimism or uh, into sort of three dimensions. And if we look at the two extremes, now remember, most of us are somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I'll talk about the two extremes just to kind of make the point. But again, most of us are sort of somewhere in the middle or we vacillate up and down a bit depending on, you know, from day to day and day to day. But but if you look at, let's just look at a situation where something bad happens. You know? So 
that you know happens every day, I suppose, to some extent. Something will go wrong. Something will fail. If we look at, so how does an optimist respond to something bad happening and how does a pessimist respond? Well, a pessimist, well, let's just say I'm a pessimist for now. I'll put my pessimism hat on. Let's just say something bad has happened. As a pessimist, my response, you know, classic pessimist response will be something like, this is really bad. Well, no, it's not really bad. This is terrible. Everything's terrible and it's always going to be terrible and it's always my fault. So that's how a pessimist will interpret something wrong, that it's always bad, it's super bad, everything's bad, and they blame themselves for that. Now, an optimist, so let's just say exactly the same. So I'm going to take my pessimist hat on. I'm going to put my optimism hat on. So let's just say exactly the same thing happened to me, but this time I'm an optimist. I would still start by saying this is bad. So optimists don't deny the reality of negative life events. That's a really, really important point. It's not about being unrealistically or what some people now call toxic positivity so first real optimism is about acknowledging what's real and i would say okay this is bad but and this is an important but an optimist would then say okay it's bad but not everything's bad it probably won't last forever and it's probably not my fault you know there are probably other factors involved so those two and again i'm kind of exaggerating that but those two extreme interpretations will lead to very different outcomes. The pessimist is probably going to feel depressed and hopeless and helpless and very possibly enter into a downward spiral where they'll feel worse and worse and worse and probably not do anything constructive. Whereas the optimist, well, they might feel bad for a while, but they're more like those, those optimistic thoughts are more likely to be motivating them to say, well, okay, what can I do about this? So this is what we sometimes call solution-focused thinking, which is a kind of a form of optimism in a way. So there's, there are different ways of interpreting the same event, and what we know is that one way is far more helpful and healthy than the other way. Now, to come back to your question, if you have a tendency to begin down that pessimism route, there are things you can do about it. The first thing is, firstly, become aware of it. We need to be mindful because often these things are uh, are unconscious almost. They're automatic habits. So you know, like any other habit, we don't even realize we're doing it. So the first step is to, to realize it, to be more aware, to be more mindful, and then to actually start to ask ourselves questions like, well, do I have to think like that? Is that the only way to think? Is there another more helpful way to think in this situation? Because if there is, if I can think that more helpful, if I can, you know, what would the optimist say? What would Dr. Happy say? If I can think that, well, then I might cope a bit better. I might bounce back a bit more quickly. Again, I might still be upset, but rather than upset 9 out of 10, I might only be upset 3 out of 10, and that makes it easier to recover and move on. So that's a simple uh, explanation about what we can start to do. That's easy to do if we are leaning towards either of this. I think it takes efforts to be a little more pragmatic about how we are thinking and balance ourselves towards a more optimistic way of uh, thinking through things. We are having fantastic conversation here about happiness, about uh, how to choose happiness, about practices that one can do to sustain happiness. Uh, before we move on to the next segment, which is the power of three round, one last question in this particular segment, uh, Dr. Happy, is what's the relationship between happiness and success? Yeah, um, another really good question um, and something I talk a lot about. So it, it's a complex one. Um, and it will, again, it will vary for different people. But but the simple answer, so historically, um, you know, if you go back 10, 12, 20, 30 years, most people would have said success will lead to happiness. 
that's how most of us, or certainly here in Australia, and I suspect there, most of us are brought up, you know, work hard, get a good career, be successful, you'll be happy. Now, that's not entirely wrong because achievement and accomplishment are good things. And we do, we do know that accomplishment and achievement, whether it's in our professional lives or any other aspect of life, that does create a form of positive emotion which can contribute to happiness. But what we also know is it's not the only thing. And we also know that for that success to contribute to happiness, it's got to be meaningful success. So if you've only succeeded in a career because that's what your parents wanted you to do, or that's what you think society wanted you to do, or that's where you thought you could make the most money. That won't necessarily create a lot of happiness if it's not really, going back to the point I made earlier, consistent with your values. So for success to lead to happiness, it's got to be consistent with your values. You need to be utilizing your strengths. It needs to tie into all those other principles I talked about earlier. The other part of that is what we now know, and again, this is a big part of happiness and what I've written about this called the primacy of positivity, is that the flip side is just as true. So, okay, yes, success can lead to happiness if it's the right sort of success, but happiness is just as much likely to lead to success. So if you put positivity first, if you focus on, and again, not just superficial happiness, but real and meaningful happiness, as I talked about, you know, thriving and flourishing, if you put that first, you're much more likely to be motivated and inspired to be healthy, do the right thing. Um, and so you're much more likely to have a more enduring form of success because that's the sort of life you're going to be living. And, and, and again, it comes down to how we define success. Too many, uh, again, certainly here in Australia, and I suspect um, over there as well, for a lot of listeners, you know, too often we, we just associate, associate success with, with money or material possessions. Now, again, that's not entirely bad. It's not entirely wrong. But there are other contributors to real success. If you look at life success overall, then again, as I hinted earlier, really the greatest wealth is our relationships. The greatest wealth we can have in life is a loving partner, loving children, loving family, good friends. That's worth more than any money can buy. And there are other forms of success. I mean, healthy living, you know, you could have all the money in the world, but if you're sick and tired and your body doesn't work and you can't, you know, walk down the street, then that's not, is that real success? So I guess what I would encourage people to think about is, yes, success can lead to happiness, but what's your definition of success? What if you were to put happiness and health and well-being first? And if you broaden your definition of success to include, okay, professional and financial success might be part of it, but what are the other parts that are important to you? And as I said, at the very least, good physical health and well-being, good quality relationships should be a part of that. Cannot emphasize more that success or happiness is just not one dimension, it is multidimensional. And uh, one need to focus on all the elements of it to call oneself as being happy. Very much so. Really, really good point. And I think that, you know, I think that's a mistake a lot of people make. Their, their definitions of success are just unidimensional. You know, and they think, okay, if I've got a certain number of dollars in the bank account or if I reach a certain, you know, ladder on the professional scale or whatever. Um, now, again, those things aren't, they're not entirely bad or wrong, but you're 100% right. There should be other dimensions which are just as, or in some ways, maybe more important. Wonderful. The first of the power of three, uh, Tim, is what are three routines that is unique to Dr. Sharp? 
Well, I don't know if they're unique to me, but the three most important routines for me are probably sleep, exercise, and connection. So sleep's really important for my health and well-being. Exercise is really important for my well-being and also um, you know, connecting with my loved ones, as I've talked about a, a lot already. Three book recommendations on positive psychology or happiness? Oh, gosh, that's hard to limit to three because there are so many. Um, can they be audio books? Yeah, it can be audio books as well. I'll give mine a plug. So <laughs> within Audible, uh, I've written Habits for Happiness, Habits for Happiness at Work, but um, some other ones. Well, Flourishing um, by Martin Seligman is one of the classics. Sonia Libomiski uh, wrote a book called The How of Happiness. That's a few years old now, but it's still fantastic. Um, and Positivity by Barbara Fredrickson. I mean, there are so many, but there are a couple of the classic ones. Okay. You have been a researcher for so long in your career. If I were to ask you, what are three things that happy people do? They practice self-compassion. They do good to others, as we've talked about already. Um, and they prioritize their health and well-being. They prioritize their happiness. Three advice for your older self with a link to happiness, if you can. I think younger self is what everybody asks you. So I have a twist to the question. What is your three advice to your older self? I would say... Um, Practice self-compassion, <laughs> like a lot of people. That, that was easy. I've been way, <laughs> well, I've been way too hard on myself for too many years. Um, and then following on from that, I suppose, is appreciate and recognize your achievements. Um, I've, uh, at the risk of sounding immodest, I've achieved more than I ever thought I would in my career, but I often discount that or I, I don't really, I don't let myself savor it. I say to my older self, I say, look back, be proud of what you've achieved, um, despite some of the mistakes or you know mistakes along the way. And I would say keep uh, keep loving. Very lucky to have a loving, supportive wife, two beautiful children. Hopefully, my older self will still be able to keep loving them. <laughs> Hopefully, they'll be around. Wonderful. And Tim, the world came back after two horrifying years of being in pandemic. I think the whole world experienced what it was to be in a pandemic moment. And here we are talking about happiness. Again, going back to your research findings, having interactions with lot many people. What are those three things, three findings about happiness post-pandemic that you would want to share with our listeners? Yeah, well, it's a, again, a really good question. Um, something I've obviously thought and talked a lot about over the last year. So I, I suppose the first thing through the pandemic that I talked a lot about was that it's okay not to be okay. You know, for a lot of people, for a lot of reasons, um, many of us were you know, anxious, we were scared, we were uh, sad, we were grieving, you know, there were losses, both family members maybe were lost, but also just lost experiences. And so I guess what I said to a lot of people is, you know, that's okay. It's, it's okay. It's normal to experience all of those some called, you know, unpleasant negative experiences. And even uh, apart from the pandemic, you know, it's okay not to be okay. As I said at the very beginning, those neg so-called negative emotions are a normal part of being a human being. You know, that's, we're not just happy people. We're real people who feel all sorts of things. The other really vital lesson that came out of the pandemic um, was that was how important connection is. So I've talked a lot about this today already, but when I talk to most people, the thing they miss the most was relationships, was interacting with others, was seeing friends. I mean, even just those little things like going to a coffee shop or going to a restaurant or um, you know, even going into work, going into the office. You know, many of us had Zoom meetings or online meetings, but seeing real people in the real world is irreplaceable. So, um, you know, I think that's a, that's a really, really important lesson there. And, you know, and it's not, you know, it's not completely over. And I know it's affected different people in different, different ways. But the other thing that I took out of it, and I'm still taking out of it now, is how resilient we are. 
Now, again, I don't want to discount or downplay the significant negative impacts many you know had on many people's lives but i was also inspired in almost every day every week by how resilient people were how well most of us coped and how well we're bouncing back um again i know you know it's not simple and it's complex for many many people but in many many ways i was um inspired by how many good people did good things you know helping other people being generous being altruistic you know taking a meal to the next door neighbor or whatever it might be. So I suppose that maybe that's a fourth one. You know, it reminded me of how good people can be. That's so very true, Tim. The last of the power of three round, Tim, here. I know you have kind of authored quite a lot of books. This is coming from one of your books. If you were to share three insights from your book, 100 Ways of Happiness, what would those three insights be? Oh, three out of 100. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I try, so I guess I'd say one, look, happiness is possible. It's for some people, it's easy. For some of us, it's harder. But even if it's a bit harder for you, it is possible. Uh, and again, the metaphor I use is that you know, anyone can get fitter and stronger if they go to the gym. You, know, you might not become an Olympic athlete. You might not become a test match cricketer or whatever, but we can all become a bit better if we go and work out regularly. Well, we can also all become a bit happier. So happiness or a little bit or, or happier is possible if you focus on it, if you do the right sorts of things. The second thing I say is happiness is not just possible, but it's desirable. Because as I said earlier, happiness increases your chances of success. Happiness makes you a better person. Happiness motivates and inspires you to do more good, to work harder, to do whatever other important things you want to do. Uh, and then the third bit, again, at the risk of repeating myself, is that in a happiness isn't selfishness. Happiness is very much about others. It's about being generous and altruistic and caring and compassionate. It's not just about me, me, me. It's about we, 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 about us. Wonderful. Dr. Happy, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts here. That's the end of Power of Three Round. I think during the course of this entire conversation, we spoke a lot about happiness, practices that one can do to kind of be happy so on and so forth. But an important thing that also uh, takes our attention is how to manage the negative thoughts. While I want to be happy, but there is that deep thought within me that is negative. You call it as saboteurs, call it as negative thoughts. How do you manage that? I want to be happy, but I don't know how to manage this uh, negativity inside me or the environment around me. Yeah, oh, look, um, very good question. And look, I can certainly relate to that. You know, I have all, all sorts of negative thoughts all the time. I, um, I can be very self-critical a lot of the time. So I guess I'd answer that in two ways. One, I'd go back to the point I made earlier about firstly, being more aware of it, because again, a lot of these things, they happen so quickly, so automatically that they influence our moods before we even really know it. But if we can practice mindfulness, a form of awareness, and become more conscious of these thoughts, we can then catch them a bit earlier and hopefully start to change them through that process of questioning, I suppose. Just you know, just because you think something doesn't mean you have to keep thinking something. Just because you think something doesn't mean it's fact. So if we can start to question ourselves, debate ourselves, the way we might question someone else, um, we can start to change some of those thoughts. It might take time, it will, it will take time, but it's possible. The other thing I'd say is to practice self-compassion. And, um, you know, this is really, really important. And self-compassion, again, starts with mindfulness. It starts with a form of awareness about saying that, okay, we're all imperfect. 
We all make mistakes. We all have negativity within us. We all have an inner self-critic. For some of us, it might be much louder than others. But practicing mindfulness and recognizing that we're not alone can make a big difference. As I said, every single person out there at some stage in their lives would be self, you know, have some form of sort of undermining or self-defeating thoughts. Um, so if we can be mindful of that, recognize we're alone. And then the final part is to treat ourselves like we might treat a best friend. Be kind to this, be kind to yourself the way you might be kind to your husband, wife, child, colleague, whatever. Because often we're not, often we're, much harder on ourselves than we would be. So if you can treat yourself with the kindness and compassion that you treat others, that can go a long way. And that's an excellent point, uh, something I can so well very relate to, is say in a game, if somebody loses a game, you go all out to kind of pep them up, motivate them, saying this is not the be-all, end-all of it, there's always a next chance. But if it is you, you don't necessarily go down the same path of giving yourself the second chance. Exactly. So again, like a simple question, well, it's, it's not always easy to do, but if you can just ask, uh, what would I say to my best friend or what would I say to someone I really care about? And can I say that to myself or can I do that to myself? Well, now, what, what do I need now um, and how can I give that to myself? If we can, if we can do that, it, again, it can go a long, long way. Sounds so easy yet so difficult to do. It is. <laughs> Most of these things are much easier said than done. But again, with practice, we can get a bit better at it. And then even if we get it wrong, if we practice self-compassion, don't be too hard on yourself. Wonderful. Tim, this has been an excellent masterclass of happiness and in the pursuit of happiness. As we wrap up, this show is all about creating ripples of inspiration. What's your Inspire Someone Today message to all the listeners out there? Do the best you can. Be happy with what you do, and just keep trying. Uh, that it's you know it's it's not always easy. It's it's hard. It's really hard sometimes, especially during difficult times of our lives. Or some of us have you know predisposition. So, but just keep doing the best you can. Keep showing up day after day. Be kind to yourself, and then do a bit better tomorrow. Do a bit better tomorrow. Happiness is just not a state of mind. You have tools to kind of exercise uh, that option. So choose wisely. That's a choose framework from both me and Dr. Happy. Thank you for listening and uh, have a wonderful, happy life ahead. Thanks again for having me. Thank you for listening into today's edition of Inspire Someone Today. It's been a privilege to bring in these conversations. If you like this episode and have any feedback or comments, do mail me at Inspire Someone Today podcast at the rate gmail.com. Inspiring someone is like creating ripples around us. If you like what to listen, feel free to share them and let's create ripples of inspiration. Do not forget to follow me on my Instagram handle at the rate Inspire Someone Today podcast for all the latest updates. This is Srikanth, your host, signing off. And until next time, keep inspiring.